Welcome to City Life Church. We're so glad that you are here tonight. We are in a series uh, called Our Loudest Witness. It is a series all about the church values um, uh, from the early church, from Pentecost to present. And so we've just been taking the last few weeks, Pastor Fred, a few weeks ago, uh, talking about diversity, our warmest welcome. Come on, a, a, a value of the early church was diversity and how that is still a value to us, to City Life Church today. Uh Pastor Justin last week talked about ministry. Come on, were you here? If you were here, you know that was a good word. I was not here, but I listened to it. I played it back, uh, and it was an incredible word uh, about ministry, a value of the early church, our best effort. Pastor Vanessa, shout out, is going to be preaching next week on community, our strongest bond. And so tonight I have the opportunity to talk to us about this value of generosity, our boldest gift. And so I just want to open up tonight with scripture, Acts chapter 2, verse 43. If you got your Bibles, if you got your phone on your Bibles, you can open it up. I'm going to have part of the verse up on the screen, but I'm going to be reading more than, than just what you see up there. So picking up just after Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 43, it says this. It says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And a deep sense of awe came over all of them, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. And they worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while, praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, come on, each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. God, we pray that that would be the testimony of the City Life Church. Come on, that each day, there would be those added to our numbers, added to our church, not just our church, but the church because of uh, your great witness in this world. We pray that it would be so, Lord, that you would continue to grow City Life Church. You would continue to grow your church all around the world because you really do have everything that we need. And God, you really do know every single one of us. You call us by name. And so we pray tonight, God, that you would continue to speak and that we would open our ears to what it is you want to say in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So how many of you know that loud doesn't always mean explosive, abrupt, loud in volume? Sometimes loud can mean persistent. If you are the parents of a young child, you know what I'm talking about, right? You, you know the loud that is abrupt and explosive in the middle of the night when your baby or, you know, your toddler cries and you're, you know, jolted out of your sleep and you run into your room, their room. You know that kind of loud, but you also know the persistent kind of loud that is the lyrics of Encanto music that just lives in your brain rent-free for six months. Y'all know 
what I'm talking about. I was joking with my daughter a couple weeks ago, actually not joking. I asked her to pray for me because I was struggling because every morning I told her, every single morning I would wake up and a different song from the Encanto soundtrack was in my brain. And the one morning, this is not an exaggeration, the one morning when I woke up and I was like, oh, wait, it's finally gone. I'm there brushing my teeth and I, my teeth, my teeth, and I realized <laughs> that I had been humming all morning the one song in Encanto that didn't have any English words. It was all just in Spanish. So I had been humming the melody the, of the, the Spanish song in the movie. So anyway, if chances are whether you have kids or you don't, whether you've seen the movie or you haven't, chances are you've at least heard one song, and it's the song We Don't Talk About Bruno. Y'all know that song? For three weeks now, it's been number one on the, you know, Billboard Hot 100 uh, top hits. And there's all these theories out there of why the song has been so successful, why it's so good, uh, why it's so catchy, why everyone loves it. But one of the theories that's out there is it's because it's just, it's got this ingenious complexity. There's a, a, a video I watched uh, earlier that, that kind of broke it down, and it was saying, we Don't Talk About Bruno is actually a style of song called a polyphonic madrigal, which already my diehard like Encanto fans are like pumped because you hear madrigal, madrigal. There's already that play on words. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda is a genius, and so you know that was intentional, right? And so the whole idea is that the, the, the song is so catchy, it's so addictive, it's so persistent in our brains because it's not just one song, it's actually like eight songs in one, right? And so you have, I think there's an a, a image up there that'll show you, right? You have all of these different melodies from all of these different characters playing in your head at the same time. And it's ever so perfectly kind of stacked on top of each other that you can hear little bits and phrases and parts of it and never do they clash. And so that is all well and good. It looks cool. Uh, it's great that it makes it catchy, but it honestly makes me feel like a schizophrenic, right? Like if you are a parent, you know what it's like to be singing this song and feel like you have eight different people living in your brain because you're trying to sing Camilo's part at the same time as Isabella's, right? And you're like, it's not possible. The reason why this song is so persistent, the reason why we can't shake this song, whether we hear it in our ears literally or not, is because it's complex, it's because it's multi-layered, it is persistent. I love that. I think, you know, sometimes in uh, uh, the, the contemporary church, in uh, a Pentecostal church, a church like ours, which, by the way, we are non uh, denominational, but we are a little Pentecostal too, right? So churches like this, sometimes we can fall into the trap of, of seeking out loud moments, right? Altar call moments. If we were to have started Acts chapter 2 at the beginning, we would have read the story of the Pentecost, which many of us know, right? It's this story where uh, the presence of God falls down and everyone uh, starts speaking in different languages and there's miracles and there's all of this stuff going on that uh, uh, there's this huge altar call where 3,000 people are saved, right, in, in one moment. And so we like to think as Pentecostals, we, we like to chase after those kinds of moments. 
which I'm not saying is a bad thing. We are Pentecostal, right? And so I, I know Chris House, he prays every single week for y'all. He prays every week that God would heal, uh, that, that, that there would be altar calls, right? That uh, the miraculous would happen in services. But I think we get sometimes caught up in the trap that loud has to mean a big, abrupt, explosive moment when sometimes loud can just be persistent, right? It's like the the, the lyrics to uh, uh, We Don't Talk About Bruno, even when it's not playing, it's playing in our brain because it's just so sticky, right? The message of the church, the loudness that we are supposed to be in this world is not just in moments. It's not at conferences. It's not from altar call to altar call. Our witness in the world is our pers- persistence. It's our consistent uh, following after Jesus, I love, that's why it says in verse 47, and each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. And I think these things that we've been talking about week after week, a warm welcome, a strong bond, the best effort of the people and their boldest gift, these are the things that move beyond a Holy Spirit moment or a service or an altar call. These are the things that we live in so that when the world sees us, they see a persistent and consistent witness of who God is. And so tonight I'm going to just talk about that, that last little sticky uh, part of our loud witness to the world that we have a bold gift to give. I want to talk about generosity Actually, before I do that, I want to make just this one mention. You know, sometimes we open up Acts chapter 1 and 2, and we think we're beginning a new story. Right, that there, this is a new story uh, of of the church, and 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 that's why I think sometimes we fall into the trap of seeing Pentecost as like the source of this crazy generous moment. I think if we fall into that trap and we think, the man that was the generosity of the church, people sharing stuff, and you know living their lives in common, that's only possible because it came right after, you know, this Holy Spirit moment. If we fall into the trap of looking at Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 as the beginning of the story, it's like, you know, turning on Endgame without watching Infinity War, right? Like, there's some stuff you're missing. I love Travis. It's like, yes, I know what you mean, right? The story of Acts, it begins in Medius Ray. It begins in the middle of the action because it's actually part two of a two-part story, right? The author that authored the book of Acts also authored the gospel of Luke, And so when we rewind beyond the Pentecost moment and we look at uh, the the character development that is happening in all of the Gospels, we see that Jesus is slowly teaching his disciples, who would be the leaders of the early church after Pentecost. He's slowly kind of uh, uh, instilling in them the things that they would need, the values that they would need to be able to have a persistent, consistent witness to the world. I think about Pentecost like, you know, it's that pulling the trigger moment. It's absolutely essential, but the Gospels are like the loading of the gun, right? We need the Gospels to be able to see uh, how Jesus is preparing us so that when the Holy Spirit inspires us and fills us to do the work of his kingdom, we know exactly what it is that we are meant to do. And so tonight, I want to look at Two practices of Jesus, we're kind of going to flip back and forth between Acts and the Gospels uh, to understand generosity, to understand this value of generosity. There's two practices 
Solidarity and charity. Solidarity and charity. I love verse 44 where it says, all the believers met together in one place and shared everything that they had. Another translation that says, they held all things in common. Where did the disciples get this idea from? Where did the disciples get this value from? They got it as they were serving in ministry with Jesus. If you turn back to Luke chapter 6, what's often called the Sermon on the Plain, you uh, will, will see Jesus preaching this sermon And just at the very beginning, we have this thing called the Beatitudes. So Luke chapter 6, verse number 17, it says, When they came down from the mountain, and just a little note about that, right? Just before this moment, Jesus had gone up to the side of the mountain with his disciples. (laughs) He, He calls out the 12 disciples that were like appointed for ministry, for leadership, right? They literally ascend a mountain. They go up to the mountain for Jesus to call them out. He calls them from the multitudes. He says, man, you're special. You're on my team. We're going to do work together. And then this is what follows. It says, when they come down from the mountain, the disciples stood with Jesus on a large level area, surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds. There were people from all over Judea and from Jerusalem and from as north as the seacoasts of Tyre and Sidon. And they had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those troubled by evil spirits were healed. Everyone tried to touch him because the healing power went out from him and he healed everyone. And I love this. In verse 20, it says, Then Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. And God blesses you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. And God blesses you who weep now, for in due time you will laugh. It's so interesting because this crowd of people, the disciples come down thinking that they're going to serve, right? Thinking that they're going to be, you know, the ones that kind of administer some blessing or whatever, right? They come down And this would have been like the lowest of the low from their cultural perspective at that time in society. In their culture, right, people who were sick, people who were demon-possessed, this would have been the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor, outcasts. And I love what Jesus does. He looks out to all of those people, and he turns around to his disciples. He doesn't turn to the people and say, hey, you who are poor, you who are hungry. He turns to his disciples And he says, you who are poor, you who are hungry, you who weep. Jesus is quite literally bringing his disciples down from their high horse, their high place of calling, and putting them on the same playing field as the poor. He's saying, if you want to be my disciple, you have to live a life of solidarity with the least of these there's this saying that we have in, in, you know, contemporary American church, I'm blessed to be a blessing, right? And it's this kind of idea that, that's pervasive, right, that we think that if we're going to be a blessing to other people, we first have to receive a blessing, right, a material sort of abundance. And so blessed to be a blessing has kind of uh, shifted in our minds to I'm going to pray for a blessing. <laughs> I'm going to pray to be, you know, for material abundance so that when that happens, I can bless other people. 
until then, you know, I'm just going to keep coming and asking God for my blessing, my abundance. But I love what Jesus does with the, does with the Beatitudes. He flips it on its head. And he says to be blessed is to not have material abundance. To be blessed is to achieve solidarity with the least of these. To be blessed is to share, as the early church would say, all things in common. A simple, just kind of uh, definition of generosity, if we're going to define it through this practice of a solidarity of Jesus, is this. That generosity is living below our means so that all may have the means to live. Generosity is living below our means so that all may have the means to live. And I, I bet there are probably some people out there wondering, well, what does that look like? What practically, like how, how can I live this out in my everyday life? I'm so glad that you asked, right? Honestly, it's so simple. And it's maybe if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've heard it so many times, you've never thought about it like this, but the simplest, most practical way that we can live this definition of generosity out is to tithe. If you haven't been a part of the church for any amount of time, you know that tithing, uh, or I can explain to you that tithing, is just setting aside a certain percentage, 10%, that's where the word tithe literally comes from, 10% of your income to give to the church. And I love what uh, that, that testimony video that we saw earlier from the Marys. I love that they were, they were honest and they were like, hey, we wanted, we've been wanting to give 10% to the church, but we couldn't. And so I love that they said they started out lower, right? Maybe 2%, maybe 3%, maybe 5%, whatever it was. But the point is that they set aside a margin, right? They found a margin in their income to be able to share all things in common. I want to throw out a disclaimer here tonight, though, because I think there might be somebody, you know, within the sound of my voice, maybe you're watching online, maybe you're here in the room, and you're, you're thinking, so that other people may have the means to live. I don't even have the means to live, right? And so to you, I hope you hear from this sermon that the church, as it was designed, is meant to be the place where you can come with all of your needs and not feel like you can't participate, not feel like you're being looked down upon, but that the church would be a place that would pull you in, invite you in, welcome you in, not only as a recipient of service or ministry or financial aid looking down on you, no, but, but welcoming you into a common life of giving, where your needs will be met as you have them and where you will meet the needs of others where and how and when you can. That's the beauty of the generosity of the church. That's the beauty of the generosity or the, the idea of limit, living uh, and sharing all things in common because we all go through seasons of needs and abundance, right? Flowing in and out of that. And when we share all things in common, we see God meets those needs and we see we get to be a part of meeting those needs for others. So there's a place for you here, no matter what your socioeconomic class is, there's a place for you here to give and a place for you here to receive, always. So I love, I love the tithe because it's a super practical thing. It's practical, it's practical because it addresses two very specific and practical needs of the church community, the material and spiritual needs of the church. 
Let's talk about just material for a second. Uh, if you were here at the beginning of the year, you know Pastor Fred uh, told us a story about his friend um, Marcellin and Haiti, who he kind of come to know uh, as he was serving with him, building bridges in Haiti. And, and so in August of last year, there was a huge earthquake that just completely took out his house. And so we as a church put it out there. We said, hey, Um, if there's anybody who is willing to have just a little less, right? If there's anybody out there, if there are people out there who are willing to live a little below their means to give up a little something uh, for Marcellin and his family, we can come together and actually make it possible for him to live, right? Literally in a home. And so we had the goal of raising 5,000. We actually raised 8,000. Come on, church. We were able to combine that with some other missions money to have 17000 uh, to send his way. And they are actively currently rebuilding his home right there. This is the update you can see. Come on, the foundation is being laid. It's, it's happening. And so if you are someone who participated in that offering, guess what? You made it possible for someone to have the means to live all the way across the world. Even locally here, just this week, a a woman reached out, and a a single foster mom who was struggling to pay some bills. And so we were able to partner with a nonprofit Christian uh, organization that we support locally through your uh, missions giving, your monthly missions giving, and connected her with them. And we kind of went in together with them to be able to cover all the costs of of her bills. That would have taken her uh, electricity away. That would have, they were, you know, thinking about suspending her license, all of that stuff. Stuff, we were able to partner with this other organization to make sure that not only her needs were met, but that she was uh, linked to this organization that would help her in the future. Come on, if you're someone who tithes, if you're someone who gives offerings, if you're someone who even gives a, a monthly missions uh, uh, giving, if you participate in that, you're making it literally possible for people to, to live. So that's the material side of it. What about the spiritual Right now, if you're sitting in this room on a pew, air-conditioned, hearing the sound of my voice right through this microphone and this sound system, and you're someone who tithes, you're making it possible, right, for the message of the gospel to to be out here, for there to be open-door moments for people to, like we had in worship, come on, to, to hear the voice of God. If you're watching online, right, through the cameras through uh, your laptop or or all of our computer system, all the technology that makes it possible for us to live stream, and you're someone who ties, you make it possible for the message of the gospel to not only go to Newport News, but beyond, right? All across the state, all across the nation, all across the world. And this is not some new concept that we, uh, you know, the contemporary church has made up. The early church was doing this all along, pulling their resources together to, make the, to meet the spiritual needs of people. We don't have time to go into it tonight, but if you're taking notes, uh, Acts chapter 16, 11 through 40, we hear about this woman named Lydia, uh, a businesswoman uh, who, who was able to host the disciples in her home, Acts 12 and 
12, uh, we see the story of, of Mary, John Mark's mom, who basically had a whole encounter night in her living room, right? Uh, Colossians 4:15, this woman, Nympha, who had uh, a, a house church in her home. I love that this whole list is women, right, in the early church supporting the church. This is how they did church back then, right? What it looked like to share all things in common, what it looked like to tithe, what it looked like to, to uh, um, give financially, to live a little less so that other people's spiritual needs might be met, was this, was people to, uh, to open up their homes, to make sacrifice, to feed others, right? That costs money, right? To feed others so that they, they could hear the message of the gospel. So just questions for you to consider tonight. As we think about this idea of sharing all things in common, as we think about solidarity, ask yourself the question, do you set aside income to live in solidarity with your church community? Do you set aside time? Do you set aside energy? Do you set aside hospitality? Come on, we know generosity is even more than just financial. I'm an Enneagram 5. All of those three things that I just said are hard for me to set aside, right? It's hard for me to find a margin of time, a margin of energy, a margin of anything in my life, right? I have a tendency to, to hoard. And so, come on. The Bible calls us, Jesus calls us through his example. The early church gives us the value of making margins in our life, in every way, sharing it with others, come on, so that they may live, and not only live, but that they may live fully. Solidarity and charity. Acts chapter 2, verse 45. I love this. It says, they sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. There might be some people who hear that phrase, selling all possessions, and it makes you uncomfortable. It makes you nervous because immediately in your mind, you're thinking about like government, uh, economic systems like market, Marxism or, or communism. And, and you're thinking that maybe I might be, or maybe even the early church was prescribing some economic system. But I think the key of this phrase, selling all their possessions, is meant not to prescribe some sort of economic system it was meant to signify sacrifice. We know that it wasn't any certain economic system because if we keep reading in Acts, you'll get to Acts 4 where basically the same thing, uh, people shared all things in common. But then you keep reading and you see there's plenty of examples of people who had private, owned private property, right, who had their own residences. Even uh, the book of Acts ends in uh, Acts 28.30 talking about Paul, where it says for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house where he lived at his own expense. And so we know that it's possible to live in a capitalistic system as the church and still live with this mindset, right, of, of dispossessing yourself of all of the things that you possess. But I, I love how it finishes that line. For the whole two years, Paul stayed where he was renting a home, where he lived at his own expense. But then it finishes by saying, and he welcomed all who wanted to come and see him. See, Paul knew that even though his house, his apartment, his flat, whatever he, wherever he was living in Rome, right, he knew that even though he technically possessed it, it wasn't his. He knew that if someone were to come and, and, and needed hospitality, that because everything he owned belonged to God, that he was dispossessed of his possessions, right? He was able to give it away freely, to use it for the glory of God. 
it's a stark contrast from the way that we are typically encouraged to live in our consumeristic culture. How many of you guys uh, watch the Super Bowl? Uh, let's say this. How many of you guys actually watch the Super Bowl commercials? I watched that. Me and my wife, we were playing cards during the actual game, and, and then we were like, shut up, stop. The commercials are on, right? And then we started paying attention, and then, of course, you know, halftime show, we were like, phones away, everything down, focus. Dr. Dre, Mary J. Blige are on TV, making history. Anyway. But if you, if you, like me, shushed everybody else in the house during the commercials, you may have caught that Toyota commercial uh, where uh, it was keeping up with the Joneses, right? They had all of these celebrity Joneses. They had Leslie Jones, Tommy Lee Jones, Rashida Jones from The Office, and then the surprise at the end, Nick Jones, right? And I, I love the commercial. If you didn't see it, basically all these celebrities, they were in their Toyotas, and they were, you know, just kind of racing each other up this mountain. And it was this picture of keeping up with the Joneses. It was this competitive, a picture of this competitive consumerism that we in America have. This is how we think of our possessions. This is how we think of owning stuff in America, in our culture. It's we're competing with one another to prove that we're just as good as or better than the people around us. But instead of keeping up with the Joneses, we should try keeping up with Jesus's generosity that he lays out for us in the Gospels and that the early church picks up on in the book of Acts. John chapter 13, 34. Come on, we know this verse. So now I'm giving you a new commandment, he says. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world, come on, talk about loud witness. It will prove to the world that you are my disciples. See, what we're meant to do, and I love that Jesus didn't say love uh, people who love you. He didn't say love like you want to be loved. He says, no, love like I loved. Love people who hate you. Love people who are against you. Love people who are hard to love. Love, in other words, sacrificially. Love sacrificially. This word love is in the Greek, the word agape, which we often translate as, you know, unconditional love. But in, uh, I love how C.S. Lewis and others uh, translate it. They translate it as charity. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, kind of defines it this way. He says this agape, this charity is an ever owing love that seeks nothing in return. It is spontaneous, unmotivated, groundless, and creative. It is the love of God operating in the human heart. Often, usually when we think of charity, we think of, you know, spare change, right? Whenever uh, around Christmas time, we're, we're leaving the grocery store and the Santa Claus is ringing the bell or whatever, and we throw whatever extra change we have in our pocket. That's how we think of charity. But charity, biblically defined, is this type of love that is sacrificial and expects nothing in Return. If we want to define generosity through uh, Jesus' practice of, of charity, it's giving sacrificially as an expression of love. And it must be, here's the catch, it must be an expression of love. This famous love chapter in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3, many of us are familiar with that, that chapter. But this verse, it says, if I give everything I have to the poor and even sacrifice my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Of course, we know that Jesus did this, literally this for us. He gave it all for us, literally sacrificed his body. But the power of the cross 
is not just that Jesus died, it's that Jesus died for us, right? It's that Jesus loved us enough. He didn't die just because he was an enemy of the state. No, he died because he loved even his enemies. He did it for us. So our generosity has to be like that. It has to be, as he says in John 13, it has to match his love. I bring this up, and I think that this is crucial because it is very possible to operate in a kind of generosity that is programmed, that is, um, you know, mechanic, maybe that is budgeted. None of those things are bad. You know, for me, part of my story, I grew up not always with the best financial situation, um, but I love the example, and I'm so grateful for my mom who who set out an example for us of, of tithing. And even when she couldn't tithe the 10%, come on, like the Marys, she, she talked about it. She would say, man, I, I can't wait until I'm able to tithe. And so it was a value from a young age for me. So that meant by the time I was working at the age of 15, I was tithing, right? 10%. And so it just was, I've been doing that. I'm like 34 now. I said like 34. Sometimes it's hard to keep up. I think I'm 34. And so it's been years now of, 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 of me just setting aside, and, and I say this not to brag, but I say this to say I'm sure there's people who can relate to this, where now the 90% of your income is like, feels like 100% because it's just, you're used to the margin, right? I love, though, this concept of charity. It says it has to be, it needs to be sacrificial. It, it, it needs to be, even as Martin Luther King Jr. says, it should be spontaneous, and what I don't mean is, I mean, maybe for some of you it means increasing, you know, that, that percentage. Uh, but, but I think I love this, what we do at Study Life Church. We have this thing called the faith promise. If you know, we start the, the beginning of the year with that, that card that we hand out. And we ask everyone, hey, pray about the number that you're believing God's going to give you, right? And for you to be able to give back to the church, not for us, but for us to give 100% of it away to missions. And so... I love it because it offers an opportunity for us to be spontaneous givers. It offers an opportunity for us to be sacrificial. I, I took that card, and this year I wrote in a number, and my wife looked at me like, are you sure? <laughs> and I looked at her like, I don't know, <laughs> right? And even though the faith promise, like I said, is just a number you're believing. It's, it's, it's above and beyond your budget. It's, it's something that, you know, you're expecting God to give above what you already have. When it comes in, right, it's going to be a number, come on, that for, for us, if it comes in, I think of all the things that I could use, that I could want, that I could desire to do with this thing. But it gives me an opportunity, and this is truly what I felt God tell, telling me as I was writing this number down. I'm giving you the opportunity, not just to make a margin in your budget, but to make a margin in your heart, to dispossess yourself of your possessions so that when something comes in, a check comes in, you don't automatically assume it's yours, but that you have space in your heart, right? That you've distanced yourself. You've, you've allowed your possessions to be what they are, but are open-handed with them so that they can be used by God in creative, spontaneous, loving ways, so the questions I want you to consider tonight in regards to charity are this. Are you preparing to part from your possessions for the sake of those God loves? Not just those you love, right? 
But are you preparing to part from your possessions for the sake of those God loves? And is your generosity loving or is it begrudging? Is your generosity loving or is it begrudging? As I'm preparing to close, I can invite the worship team to come back up. You know, Pastor Fred, at the beginning of this year, defined for us our vision at City Life Church. And he said, you know, our vision at City Life is that we would be a place, uh, the 757 would be uh, the place where Jesus is the easiest to find, right? That it would be easy to find Jesus here. And I just, as I was preparing the sermon, I came to the realization as I'm looking at all of these values and all of these things that we're, we're talking about in the series, diversity, ministry, community, generosity, think about these things. And I think as we're doing these things to make it easy for people to find Jesus, it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy for us, right? How many of y'all know diversity is not easy, <laughs> How many of y'all know ministry, serving other people is not easy? Community is not easy. Certainly what we've been talking about tonight, generosity is not easy. These are costly, complicated things. And so it can be our heart's desire and our intent, our vision, that Jesus is easy to find here, but understand that the work it takes for our witness to be loud into the world is anything but easy. There's this bridge in Uruguay in this lagoon called Laguna Garzon. And it's a one-of-a-kind bridge, a circular bridge. But when they were coming together to talk about building this bridge, the purpose of this bridge was just like any other bridge, right? The purpose of the bridge was just to get people to the other side. Before the bridge, I think there's a picture here, before they built this bridge, the only way to go from one side of the lagoon to the other was in this little um, flotation device, right? In this tugboat, basically, that was set up to have one car. And so if you wanted to cross, you would have to go one car at a time. And so the people in the community there, there's one side that, that's more, you know, it's thriving. It's got a lot going on. The other side is this beautiful shoreline, and they're developing it now. They want people to go to the other side, but, you know, this is a problem, right? And so they're like, we got to solve this problem. And I love that this community in Uruguay, they didn't just solve the problem simply, right? They could have just made it easy. But the community, they wanted to get people, they didn't want to get people across at the expense of the beauty and the function of the lagoon itself. See, the lagoon is a, a, an ecosystem on its own. There's birds, there's fish, there's oysters and clams. And because of that, there's all of these bird watchers that come and there's all these fishermen that go there to make a living, right? Catching all of this stuff. And so they say, you know, we want to get people to the other side, but we want to preserve the beauty and the function of the lagoon itself. So they hired this renowned architect, Raphael Vignoli, who designs this circular bridge. And it's purposeful, right? The purpose of it, if we can see it again, right? The purpose of it the curved sides requires travelers to slow down 
And it takes into consideration the pedestrians and the fishermen who might want to congregate on the sides of the bridge so that they can watch the birds, they can fish. And it also cuts down the, the noise pollution so that they don't disturb the wildlife. And maybe the most important thing is that it's beautiful and it's drawing people from all across the world to come to it so that they can get to the other side, sure, but so that they can enjoy the lagoon itself. And you know, people on the internet do what people on the internet do. There's already people like, this is the dumbest idea ever. Who is this architect, right? Because they could have made it easy, right? They could have just made it straight. There's already, I was looking on Google, you could, you could search for it and there's like a review, just like you can review everything else. And people are like, dumb, so stupid, one star. I had to slow down. <laughs> They're asking the question, wouldn't it be easier to just make the bridge straight with less fuss, less costs and more convenience? The answer of course is yes, right? But would it be beautiful? Would it be loving? Would it be generous? Huh? Would it invite people to want to cross it? I think as a church, as we are endeavoring to create open doors for people so that they can get to heaven, so that they can encounter Jesus, there's a reality that we have to take into consideration when we look at the design of the church. It's going to cost us. As a church, as we are hoping to be a loud witness into the world, if we do it the way that Jesus has called us to do it, it's going to slow us down from our personal earthly pursuits. It'll introduce unexpected curves and inconveniences. We'll have to split our focus between the eternal destination on the other side and the intermediate space in between. But come on, y'all. The designer of the church is world-renowned. Not only does he know how to get us to the other side, but he knows how to do it in a way that's beautiful, in a way that is generous, that is full of solidarity and charity. The designer, one of the features that he says he loves about uh, th this bridge is that when people are driving around the curves of the bridge and they look to their right or their left and they look inside the circle, he says it's like a lagoon within a lagoon that nobody can just rush past it. It forces them to take into consideration the bigger picture, to appreciate the bigger picture. And as I think about the church, I think about the fact that we are meant to be called to be a lagoon within a lagoon. We're called to be a picture, a reflection of heaven. We can't be so focused on trying to get people to heaven that we forget our calling to be heaven on earth. We are a lagoon within a lagoon. And Jesus designed his church in exactly that way. It's going to cost us, but it's beautiful, it's charitable, it's loving, and invites people to open door moments. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to go back in to worship. But Lord, may it be so. Lord God, may it be so. God, would you, maybe in some people's hearts tonight, would you curve the straight edges, as painful as that might sound, 
so that we would be willing to be inconvenienced for our community, for our brothers and sisters, for the church, for people in need. Would you help us, God, to slow down so that we can appreciate the people on the sidelines, huh, come on, who are just trying to make a living maybe, people on the sidelines, God, who have needs. Help us, help us, God, to live as people who carve out spaces in the margins so that we can be generous, generous, and abundantly so. In Jesus' mighty name.